You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, and I'm talking today about hypermobility. Joining me is Dr. Stacy Kalish, who is a clinical geneticist in the Division of Human Genetics, also at CHOP. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me today. So since we're talking about hypermobility, let's start with a definition. When is a child just flexible, and when do we say that they're hypermobile? So it's a really good question. Flexibility is really our ability to stretch. So it's impacted by our joints and our joint structure, but also really by our muscle elasticity and our muscle tone. Joint mobility and hypermobility is really about our ligament laxity or how we can move and position our joints. So for hypermobility, we're really talking about ligaments that are looser than we expect, and that can lead to joint instability. It's really important to keep in mind that there's a big range of normal flexibility, even more so in young children who tend to be very much more flexible than adults. Um, And so because of this, there's this big range of normal, and it's not unusual to see people within families who are at the more flexible end of the normal spectrum. A lot of times this really doesn't cause problems for anyone and isn't something that should raise alarm. It's also not unusual to see joint hypermobility isolated to one specific joint or one group of joints. So to see an individual who has hypermobility only in their shoulders or only in their fingers. So those are sort of the kids who do kind of fun tricks and say, look what I can do. But so maybe they're flexible at stretching one particular part of their body, but not everywhere. Exactly. So we can see kids who do tricks in their fingers only and can show off their cool things, but don't have any problems. We can even see this cause problems in some individuals. So people who have recurrent shoulder subluxations or shoulder dislocations Mm -hmm. who have isolated shoulder laxity, but their other joints are really normal. We think this is often because of something structurally different about how their shoulders are made, but not necessarily the sign of an underlying inherited connective tissue disorder. Interesting. So what are some of the red flags that might come up in a patient's history that would suggest hypermobility? So again, joint hypermobility isn't necessarily a problem. So you mentioned kids who are doing tricks. This also includes sort of the child who comes in for their well-child visit and sits on the exam table and really clearly hyperextends their elbows. Mm-hmm. If they're healthy and active and this isn't causing them any problems, this isn't necessarily something to worry about. Right. Often if you ask their parents, they'll say that they're more flexible also. Red flags for joint hypermobility really include frequent injuries, so severe sprains or true dislocations that happen without significant trauma. Even without injuries, we can see joint instability that can lead to fatigue with activities or muscle strain and muscle and joint pain. Over time, we can see earlier onset of arthritis in people who have joint hypermobility if it's not managed appropriately. Mm. And so you mentioned that hypermobility alone is not necessarily a problem. So beyond just being hypermobile, what does make us worry about a connective tissue disorder? So certainly joint hypermobility is a common feature of inherited connective tissue disorders. But in inherited connective tissue disorders, we often see systemic features as well. And these really can vary from condition to condition, but will involve the heart, the eyes, the skeleton, the skin, uh, sometimes the GI tract or even other body parts. Mm -hmm. So more than just the 
skin findings that we might be seeing or the joint symptoms, we're looking for systemic symptoms as well. Exactly. And these, again, really vary from condition to condition. So what are some of the most common (laughs) connective tissue disorders and how do we tell them apart? So it's a good question. And there's really a lot of inherited connective tissue disorders. So we often think about one or two or, you know, maybe three or four, depending on how familiar we are. But there's dozens of mm-hmm. inherited connective tissue disorders. The most common ones include Marfan syndrome, which right. is often well known. Individuals with Marfan syndrome are usually taller than we expect for their families. They can have significant eye findings like high myopia or lens dislocation. Cardiac features, uh, most commonly mitral valve prolapse or aortic dilatation. Mm-hmm. And they can also have significant skeletal findings, including a pectus or severe scoliosis, arachnodactyly, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. We also think about osteogenesis imperfecta, or OI, and this is a condition where individuals have an increased risk for fractures, Right, and they can have anywhere from a handful of fractures to hundreds of fractures in their lifetime. They also often have blue sclera or hearing loss as other signs. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about sort of the different forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and there's many different forms of Ehlers-Danlos, or EDS, as well. Some of the more common ones include the classical type of EDS, where we see significant skin fragility and elasticity with abnormal and atrophic scarring. More rare is the vascular type, which can lead to significant risk of arterial or organ rupture. And then the most common of them, which is the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or EDS, we now think about hypermobile EDS as part of something known as a hypermobility spectrum or a hypermobility spectrum disorder. We know that people who have HSTs can have joint symptoms as their most significant symptoms, but they can also have multi-system disorders, including orthostasis or true POTS, GI symptoms, and some other findings as well. So is this sort of autonomic dysfunction? Does it fall in that category? So they can have autonomic dysfunction, certainly. With their hypermobility. Yes, and it's not entirely clear why that happens. It is important to keep in mind that on the other hand of the spectrum is something known as asymptomatic joint hypermobility, which really reflects that we know some people can have even generalized joint hypermobility and never develop any symptoms in their joints or outside their joints. Mm. So obviously I'm talking to a clinical geneticist. So I assume there's a genetic cause of hypermobility. Is there one cause? Are there many causes, many different genes for each of these different syndromes? And if so, how do we even start thinking about figuring out the genetic diagnosis here? It's a good question. So most inherited connective tissue disorders do have identified genetic causes. The outlier really here is really hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders, Mm -hmm. where we still don't know a genetic cause. There have been a number of large studies that have been conducted looking for causes of hypermobility spectrum disorders, but nothing specific has been identified yet. This doesn't mean that there isn't an inherited component, but really could mean that this inheritance is more complex than we previously thought. Right. So it could be that there's a number of different genetic causes that varies among families. So when we do studies in lump families with hypermobility together, we're not able to find one specific cause. Mm-hmm. It also could be that hypermobility spectrum disorders are really inherited in a multifactorial manner, sort of like the way we think about hypertension or type 2 diabetes, right. where there's a number of genetic factors that influence your risk of developing disease, uh, but not one specific one we can identify. So because it sounds like there are many different genetic causes, and in some cases, we don't know the genetic cause. Is this more of a clinical diagnosis? 
So clinical diagnosis and clinical evaluation is always the first step. Um, We should always go back to sort of history and examination. And even for those conditions where we do know a genetic cause, a good clinical evaluation can help us really rule in or rule out a diagnosis and help us determine if genetic testing is warranted. Mm -hmm. Genetic testing in those cases can be helpful to confirm a diagnosis and then also can be helpful for testing additional at-risk family members. For conditions with hypermobility like hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobile spectrum disorders, again, we don't know the genetic cause, so testing isn't possible. The diagnosis is made entirely based on clinical diagnostic criteria and evaluation. So walk us through, if we have a patient in our office and we're worried about one of these hypermobility syndromes, how do we make the diagnosis? What are sort of the clinical steps that we can take to either reassure or make us think that we need to do further workup? So what I would say is most important is really identifying those patients who are at risk for having other inherited connective tissue disorders outside of hypermobility spectrum disorders. These are the patients who really should be referred for clinical genetics evaluation, and then if they have an inherited connective tissue disorder, should be managed by a clinical geneticist and with multidisciplinary care. Red flags for these conditions really include having significant pectus deformity or severe scoliosis, having more than 10 fractures or having unusual fractures, having very hyperelastic or fragile skin, uh, having high myopia, hearing loss, lens dislocation, or really any family history of vascular dissection or organ rupture. Okay. For kids who really seem to have hypermobility, they have joints that seem more flexible than expected. They may have joint injuries or joint pain or have fatigue with activities or have some of these other systemic symptoms we've talked about. They really can be managed and diagnosed by their primary care doctors. Unfortunately, there's really a great shortage of genetic services nationwide, and uh, these hypermobility conditions seem to be pretty common, and so we're really not able to assess all of these patients in a timely manner. What we really recommend is a full-body physical therapy program as the mainstay of treatment for joint hypermobility. Hmm. This should really focus on strengthening the muscles around the joints for better stability. This can look like a one-time comprehensive evaluation with a physical therapist or a brief course of PT, but the ultimate goal is to develop a home exercise program because what we ultimately recommend is daily or near-daily strengthening exercises. So the physical therapy is helping teach families and children how to protect their joints to prevent these injuries that they're prone to. Yeah, so physical therapy can teach children and their families proper positioning so that they're not hyperextending joints. Mm -hmm. Also gives better strength to the muscles to provide better scaffolding to the hypermobile joints and really can reduce pain and reduce risk of injury in the future. Great. Outside the joints, we really recommend other manifestations be treated in the same way that they would in anybody else. So GI manifestations such as constipation or irritable bowel syndrome symptoms can be treated by primary care doctors in the same way they would be for other children with referrals to GI when these are more severe. The same for headaches and orthostasis with standard treatments that we would use for any other children. Mm -hmm. In the past, there was some concern that children with hypermobility conditions were at risk for structural heart concerns. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that this was a lot of the push for more clear diagnoses, but we now really know that this isn't the case. Interesting. There have been a couple of studies that have been done within the past few years, including a large study we did at Penn in our adult populations. And this really showed that there was not a significantly increased risk of mitral valve prolapse or of aortic dilatation. Hmm. And so at this point, we're really not recommending echocardiogram screening for children or adults who have hypermobility conditions. Interesting. So that includes Marfan's, which you said 
could have aortic root dilation or mitral valve prolapse. No, this is only for hypermobility spectrum disorders and for hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Got it. So you have to kind of make that diagnosis first. Exactly. So again, for kids who have any of those red flags that we talked about at the beginning, concern for Marfan syndrome, for OI, for classical type EDS even, you know, those are those signs that should warrant referral to a geneticist. Uh, we would do a more comprehensive evaluation, think about the family history, consider genetic testing to confirm a diagnosis, and then talk about management. But for kids and families where this seems to be really straightforward hypermobility, even within systemic features like a hypermobility spectrum disorder, those can be managed by primary care doctors and the management is entirely symptomatic. We've been talking a lot about some of the risks that these kids have to hyperextending their joints. So are there sports that they should avoid to prevent unnecessary injuries? So it's a good question. We generally recommend that people who have hypermobility avoid high-impact activities, so contact sports, heavy weightlifting, or things that take advantage of their hypermobility, like dancing or gymnastics or cheerleading at a higher competitive level. This can be really tough for families, especially when we meet children when they're older Mm -hmm. and they're very um, much involved in these activities. And so we generally really recommend using good judgment. For younger children, Recreational dance or gymnastics, uh, you know, tumbling as a five or six year old is really not likely to be harmful. You know, for kids who are playing sports and are able to be active and involved in not having injuries, then I wouldn't say that they need to absolutely stop. Mm-hmm. But we do know that activities with a lot of contact, like football or ice hockey, and that things like dancing or gymnastics at a competitive level where a child is practicing 10, 15 hours a week really put these children at risk for having injuries, uh, having repeated injuries, and then ultimately having pain in the future. I imagine that's a hard conversation because some of these kids may have been drawn to things like gymnastics because they are so flexible. It's an asset almost in their competition. But at the same token, like you mentioned, it could lead to injuries that are harmful to them in the long term. Absolutely. And, you know, because we know that this is a condition that can run in families, a lot of times when we meet a child who has a hypermobility spectrum disorder, they have a parent who does as well. And those parents may have been competitive gymnasts or cheerleaders when they were younger or athletes who were very involved in sports. And often the parents have some of the manifestations of having been pushed and pushing through their injuries for a lot of years, so that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. For the older children, the teenagers who are very involved, it is really difficult because they are identified as being very hypermobile. They're good at gymnastics or good at dance, and it becomes a lot of their identity. Right. And so at that point, we really talk to families about risks and benefits. And we know that any activity has potential risks and that there's benefits and really suggest that these older children and their families have conversations and decide what's worth it to them and what's not. In many cases, I imagine, though, that the repetitive injuries that they're getting are what ultimately bring them to getting this hypermobility diagnosis. Absolutely. And so, you know, for the kids who are already having repeated injuries, I think it's easier for them to see that this is potentially causing them long-lasting damage and that they may want to stop their activities. When we meet kids and teenagers who are very hypermobile but not yet having significant injuries, it's much harder for them to think about stopping their activities. And so sometimes the conversation is, you know, if you're not having injuries now and you feel comfortable and your parents are on board, then you can continue. But if you start to have repeated injuries, then it may be time to think about stopping. So remind me now that we've covered a lot of the hypermobility 
syndromes and presentations. If I have a patient in primary care who I identify as having some hypermobility, when should I consider referring them to a clinical geneticist? So it's a good question, and I don't have a great answer for you. You know, there really isn't anything from a management perspective that I would do as a clinical geneticist that's different than what you could do as their primary care doctor. You know, physical therapy and joint strengthening is really the mainstay of joint symptom management uh, with use in, of orthopedic services as needed for specific injuries. Um, you know, and then we work with other specialists, with gastroenterologists as needed for GI symptoms, with cardiologists or autonomic nervous system specialists as needed for orthostasis and autonomic nervous system symptoms, with neurologists as needed for headaches. And so there really isn't much for us to add as a clinical geneticist. I would say certainly if there's concern that this may be another inherited connective tissue disorder, then that's a good time for a referral. And sometimes if you feel like you're just stuck and nothing is helping, then certainly feel free uh, to think about referring as well. I love to end on uh, just summarizing kind of the top three take-home points. And I think within that, reminding us what those red flags are that should prompt referral to genetics for a connective tissue disorder. Absolutely. So I think that my biggest take-home point would be that there's really a broad spectrum of inherited connective tissue disease. And it's really important for primary care providers who are seeing these patients most often and seeing them initially to recognize the signs of the disorders so that children can be managed appropriately. So again, those who have isolated hypermobility or concern for hypermobility spectrum disorders or hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome most of the time can be managed by their primary care doctors with management targeted towards their symptoms. Those who have signs of other inherited connective tissue disorders should be referred to medical genetics. And these really include being significantly taller than expected for family, having significant skeletal differences, so having a severe pectus deformity or Mm -hmm. a severe scoliosis, having arachnodactyly, having some of the eye findings that we talked about, so a high myopia or lens dislocation, having cardiac features that are known, so having mitral valve prolapse or aortic enlargement, Mm -hmm. uh, having a family history that's concerning for any of these conditions, including a family history of aortic or other arterial dissection or of organ rupture, and then for kids who have significant skin findings with skin fragility or atrophic scarring. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that the next point would really be that the genetic causes of hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders still aren't known. Mm -hmm. So genetic testing isn't necessary and isn't even possible for these disorders. Uh, So certainly isn't a reason for referral for those patients. Also, that ongoing cardiac screening isn't necessary for those patients. So they don't need referrals to cardiology either unless there's concern for cardiac symptoms. Right. And then finally, I would say that joint injuries, instability, and joint pain that are due to hypermobility are really best prevented and best treated by physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And this really works best when it's daily or near-daily strengthening exercises done on an ongoing basis. Thank you for teasing apart when we need to refer to a medical geneticist versus physical therapy or other specialists, because it's not always genetics that needs to be the one-stop shop for these patients. They might be best served like you've mentioned, with physical therapy. Absolutely. And then the final thing that I would add is if you're not certain, then certainly you should reach out. You know, I'm happy to talk to any local primary care providers who aren't certain if they should refer patients. And if you're not in the Philadelphia area, then I would suggest reaching out to your closest genetics clinic for advice on whether or not to refer. 
Great. And we know we can find you at CHOP in the genetics division. Um, we can also call genetics at 1-800-TRY-CHOP. And we can put in our consults in Epic. For those who aren't local, I agree, you should find your local geneticists or other specialists. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 